Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Hey guys, welcome to part two of episode 118 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope that you're all doing well and are excited to get back into the world of the McNeil family. Oh, I'm ready. It's uh, definitely an intense story, and we appreciate the feedback that we've already gotten so far from part one, so we're excited to bring everyone part two. But before we get into part two, I just want to give you a quick recap of kind of what we went over from part one. Nothing crazy, but just, to, you know, to get us back on track. So we discussed the history of the McNeil family from when Martin and Michelle met in 1977 until Michelle's body was discovered in the master bathroom. I went over the discovery, the 911 call, and when Michelle McNeil was pronounced dead at the hospital on April 11, 2007. It was definitely intense. It really was. And it only gets crazier. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait. So, of course, the detectives working the case are going to question Martin because he and his six-year-old daughter slash granddaughter were the ones to find Michelle's body. The most conflicting piece of evidence that exists here is that Martin will tell investigators, paramedics, and later friends and family that when he found Michelle, she had been kneeling in front of the tub and her head had been underwater. However, we knew that that's not true based on four other eyewitnesses, the three neighbors and Ada McNeil. Martin also contradicted himself in the 911 call where he stated that she was submerged completely in the tub. Physical evidence also corroborates the story of the witnesses in the form of the soaking wet floor when Michelle was pulled out of the tub. Like the floor of the bathroom would not have been so wet if only her head was submerged. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, most of the water is going to be on the body. Correct. And it's a little different. Like the last case that we had about the wife in the tub, what was beneath her was rug. And this is tile. So the water didn't dry that fast. That's a good point. I didn't even think about that. Yes. There's a lot of water left. Because it appeared that Michelle died of unnatural circumstances, an autopsy was performed on her body while the scene at which she was found was processed and her family was interviewed. At the time, because it was only her granddaughter, adopted daughters, and her husband that were home, they were the only ones that were interviewed, Uh, meaning that later her children that weren't living at the house, they're going to be interviewed later. Martin explained to them that he had been at work all morning and early afternoon and then went to pick up Ada at around 11.45 a.m., and she attends a private kindergarten in the area. So she was relatively close to home. Michelle's adopted daughters said that they had seen their mother before they went to school, and she was in good spirits and seemed to be healing very well. She was pretty self-sufficient at that point. And I think that's important to kind of note here. When Alexis was taking care of her mother, she really needed a, a lot of help at that point, Michelle did. But now... Michelle was doing everything on her own. She really just still only had bandages on her face. So she was quite healed at this time. She was self-sufficient. 
Michelle's surgeon had reported that Michelle's surgery had gone well. In pre-surgery meetings, he said that Michelle did express some hesitation to get the surgery done. She had wanted to postpone it because she was nervous about her mild hypertension or high blood pressure. But Martin was pretty insistent that she go through with the surgery. Wait, that uh, that's such a contradiction because the husband was the one that was distraught over the fact that she got the surgery done. Right, he was ranting and raving the whole time the CPR was going on with the neighbors and then later the paramedics. So, right. again, here we have another contradiction where he was the one that was kind of pushing for this surgery, but now when she's hurt, she's say, he's saying, oh, I didn't want her to have it done. So technically, right, because she was so she was scared for her hypertension and anything else that could happen or could go wrong during surgery. Yes, and we're going to get a little further into other motivations for this surgery late, later on in the episode. Ooh, okay. Yeah. So the surgery itself went well, and the doctors prescribed Michelle the extra drugs that Martin had requested. Now, if you remember from part one, and it's amazing, one of our listeners, Brandy, reached out, and she knows about her, like, the prescription drugs, and she was like, um, this is a crazy mix of drugs, and it's so true. And the surgeon that Michelle had also agreed Like, this mix of drugs is not necessarily safe to give, but because Martin is a doctor himself, he trusted him, and he said to Martin, yes, she may need these drugs later on, but please promise me that you're going to administer these drugs. Like, you have to be cognizant that combinations of certain pills that I'm giving out together will depress her breathing. So that was kind of the caveat that the doctor gave to Martin. I'll agree to all of the drugs that you say your wife is going to need, but you have to be the one who makes sure that she's taking them in the right dosages and not at the same time. And Martin said that he would do that. Uh, I find that so weird, right? Because, I mean, this is your medical license on the line, right? Yeah. Would I in a million years trust some other doctor that I might not even know well, or even if I did know them well, that's that, you know, when you're a doctor, a surgeon, whatever, your health is such a higher standard, especially with the ability to, uh, you know, write prescriptions for drugs. Like you can't take that lightly. I would never trust any other doctor or person with drugs that I gave them. Yeah. I, I agree with that because you don't know necessarily, you know, what the thought process of this doctor is and what his role as a husband with his wife is. And that's the case here is it's a very intense situation going on between Martin and Michelle at this time. Yeah. And also like you, I think you just said that, uh, but I'll, I'll just say my piece on it. Like even from a medical point of view, if you have two doctors, they can be totally different uh, in their philosophies. Correct. One might be more, um, you know, quick natural to give out healing. drugs and natural healing. So there's different things that can be going on. I don't know. I find that just not a good idea. Yeah, I don't think that was the best idea. But what made the surgeon feel a lot better is that each time he saw Michelle and he did see her every week post-surgery, she was getting better and better. She was alert and she was healing very well. At that point, they had even taken the stitches off of her eyelids and just kind of put that medical tape there. Okay. So the healing process was going well. Her swelling was going down, but the medicine was still there at the house. 
So soon after these interviews were conducted, the medical examiner's report came out. Michelle had died of natural causes. Natural causes. Natural causes. The ME. Yes. Okay. He said that her death was listed as heart disease with reports of hypertension. The amount of drugs in her system were the proper therapeutic dosages that she was prescribed. So no murder. Well. Well, that's it, guys. That's the end of part two. (laughs) (laughs) That would be really bad. I think everyone would be upset if that's how it ended. What? In ten minutes? I've been waiting (laughs) a long time for this as well, just with all, you know, just like all of you. So Um, there has to be more to this. And I'm sure that, once again, him being a doctor knows exactly what to mix with what for the recommended doses. That way, when an autopsy would be performed and the toxicology report would be done, it wouldn't look suspicious. Right. So right away, I don't even care about that because he knows her medical history. He knows that, you know, she had this surgery. And with any surgery, there are complications. And with the medication, if it was to affect her breathing or anything of any kind, she's probably... You know, you're putting her at a higher risk for something to happen. Right. And I I know there's a lot of complications that come with surgeries. But what's so interesting here in this case is that it's so far into her recovery and things were going so well. So it is a little suspicious. I would imagine that's what doctors think. That's what I would have thought the medical examiner would think as well. But there was no, there was nothing to go on. Maybe we should be hired. That way, every time a woman or a man has surgery, we go, just so you know, there's a co- there's a possibility that your spouse could be telling you to get the surgery, and then you might die afterwards. Right. Like, oh, we're just victim advocates that <laughs> yeah. aren't victims yet? <laughs> just like... Well, now I'm nervous to ever get a surgery. No, no, no. Don't be nervous. Okay. I mean, I'm glad you don't need surgery. You either. Um, yeah. So we're lucky in that regard. But uh, if we ever did, God forbid, well... Um, you know, technology and, uh, you know, the studies of the body are pretty good nowadays. So, yeah, but not post is looking like, well, <laughs> my healing might be well, when you have, disrupted by my murderous husband. Well, when you have a cocktail of drugs, it's probably not a good idea. <laughs> so after this report came out, the McNeil family tried to move on and put Michelle to rest. All the McNeil children came to stay at the family house in Pleasant Grove while the funeral was arranged. During his stay at the house with his girlfriend, his son, Martin's son, Damien, was asked to flush all of Michelle's medicine down the toilet by his father. Um, Martin told Damien, please throw all the medication away because it hurts too much to look at it every morning. And Damien did as his father asked. But I think that's really interesting, too, because in a way, is that him getting rid of any potential evidence? I don't think so because if they like they perform the toxicology report, they know what she was taking. So even if he flushed it down the toilet, I can't see that being that big of a deal. Especially if the doses found in her body were of normal level, they know what she was taking and it's on record. So her them flushing that down the toilet, I don't think is a big deal. Okay, but, but maybe a little odd. I don't know. I'm once again, I'm not. I don't know if this can affect the case in any way, but I don't think so because they know what she's on. I think you're right because there are records of the prescription. So just because the bottles aren't physically there, but what the bottles physically there, being physically there shows 
is how many pills had been administered. So we, like police and investigators, if they were to investigate this, wouldn't have like, oh, look, half of her Percocets are gone or half of her hydrocodone are gone. I see what you're saying. Yeah. I just think it's, it's, it kind of goes along the line of the bathtub water. Like, like you said in part one, there's evidence here that could save you. If the proper amount of pills were there, leave them. If the, like the water in the bathtub could help you with evidence, keep it in there if you didn't do it, you know? Yeah. I would say that there's a difference between uh, being behind the line, crossing the line, and then stepping on the line. I think that them dumping the drugs down the toilet, like him requesting that of his son, is him stepping on the line. Okay. Where it's like, I'm not too sure where it could lead to yet, but that's definitely something that, I mean, is a little weird. A little red flaggy. So a little red flaggy. So I'll say that he's stepping on the line at this okay. point. So during the funeral, many gathered to celebrate the life of Michelle and say goodbye to her. The attendees were a little taken aback by the speech that Martin gave during the church ceremony, where he talked about himself more than he did Michelle. They listened as he asked God what he had done to deserve this, and the good life that he had led, and why this all happened. His daughters were very upset by this speech and found it to be inappropriate. They were especially upset because they had all spoken about the events leading up to their mother's death before the funeral, because this is really the first time all the siblings have gotten together. So they're kind of combining all of their stories, which make them feel very suspicious towards their father, the um, the three daughters. So Alexis had been at the Pleasant Grove house for a week helping with her mother's recovery. And during that time, she had been very unhappy with her father and had grown very suspicious of the man that she once yearned to impress. When Alexis spoke with her sisters about what she believed was going on between her parents, she had to go way beyond the time before the surgery even took place. So she's like super backtracking here. Okay. She went back to a week before the surgery when Martin had called a family meeting with everyone except Vanessa. He was still ashamed because of her past drug use, so Vanessa had been cut out of the family will. And this meeting was regarding the will, so that's why Vanessa wasn't invited. Now, devil's advocate here, you can kind of say now that the stepping of the, on the line of the drugs down the toilet maybe could suggest that maybe he thought that Vanessa would come by and see the drugs and try to use them. Um, well, he specifically said to Damien that it's because he couldn't look at them because it reminded him of Michelle. Okay, so never mind. So I think that would be a really good reason to get rid of the medication, but he didn't convey that. Gotcha. But I think that's an interesting point. So in the months prior to Michelle's surgery, Martin himself had a medical issue. His big toe continued to swell. He had to have three surgeries and went to see many specialists about his condition. He even consulted the Mayo Clinic. And for most of the three months before Michelle's surgery, Martin actually had to walk with a cane. Because of his big toe? Well, I know it sounds a little trivial, but the swelling was like half the size of his foot. Like it was pretty extensive. Want to know a fun fact about the big toe? I guess. I guess so. Okay. So if... 
like there's people unfortunately there's people out there who don't have their big toe or something happened okay it's actually it accounts for a, a large portion of your balance control so maybe that's why he needed his cane yeah so fun fact your big toe accounts for most of your uh balance balance okay well thank you john yeah no problem <laughs> um he told his family and his church that when he had been to all of these specialists and the Mayo Clinic, he was diagnosed with both multiple sclerosis and terminal cancer, and that he would be dying soon. Wait, really? Yes. What? Okay. And seeing Martin limp around on a cane, everyone pitied the doctor and his family. And Michelle and the children were very upset because Martin was dying. I mean, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. So about a week before Michelle's surgery, Martin called a meeting because he wanted his children to know what was going to happen when he died, like with the will and stuff. So he told his children and Michelle that Alexis, the third oldest child, would be the executor of the will. So Rachel agreed with her sister Alexis that the meeting had been really bizarre and the choice not to make his wife the executor was very strange. During the meeting, Michelle expressed her shock at the fact that she wouldn't be named executor, especially because she would be the one having to take care of the, the young adopted children and Ada. So why wasn't she made executor of the will? Like, it was very bizarre. That's right. Um, you know what? I'm trying to I'm thinking of like present time, but I see what's going on here. So they're trying to recount of things in the past before her death that seemed odd. So to not put your wife as the beneficiary of your will or to be in control of everything is a little bizarre. Almost as if you knew she was going to be gone. Well, wait. Okay. Alexis revealed to her sisters that it wasn't just the fact that Vanessa was cut out of the will or Alexis was the executor that they thought was weird about the whole meeting of the will. Um, there was a whole another thing going on here buckle up for this one i'm buckled <laughs> remember i said that when martin turned 50 he started working out excessively and tanning and michelle thought that he might be having an affair yeah well he was oh no after michelle had expressed to her daughter alexis that she feared martin was having an affair alexis went in full-on detective mode at one point, her father was going out of town for a conference, so she checked his luggage. And in the car, she found a whole suitcase full of items for a woman. Okay. And this incident caused a really big fight. And on another occasion, Alexis took her father's phone and got his T-Mobile password. Afterwards, she and her mother went through her father's phone records where they found a number that he was calling excessively at all times of the night. She had taken the number and called it, and a young woman answered the phone. When she ran a background check, she found out that this woman that answered the phone was actually working at, like as a receptionist at one of his medical practices or, or a, a facility that he was associated with. This is crazy because... They they were able to infiltrate this guy's whole private life. Oh yeah. You know what would suck though is if they didn't find anything, 
and now you kind of been snooping around in, in your dad's business. Well, I mean, I'd rather feel guilty than not do anything and think your husband's having this affair. I think That's they true. had they had reasonable doubt to do what they did. Right. I would just feel, I feel bad for the kid though because the kid shouldn't be in the middle. No, at any age. At any age. So she told her sisters that her mother confronted their father, and he said that he would stop talking to the woman. Oh, okay. Yes. However, her and Alexis continued to snoop through Martin's things. So, like, when he had gone away to another medical conference, they kind of looked around the house. And they really found more than they bargained for. Instead of finding evidence that he was continuing an affair, they found Martin's medical records from the Mayo Clinic. And guess what? Let me take a guess. Okay. He does not have cancer or multiple sclerosis or anything at all. You would be correct. I thought so. He does not have cancer. He doesn't have multiple sclerosis. He had a nerve condition that could be treated by simple lifestyle changes. Now, you know what's interesting? I wonder if saying that he had terminal cancer and everything else, right, was a attempt to set up, I don't want to say escape, but an attempt to flee and just kind of leave and start new. Oh, maybe. You know, think about it. If he already has this other woman already, kind of in his back pocket that works for him and everything, he's able to set up his own diagnosis because he's a doctor. Yeah. He has the ability and the money to leave. So if he had a a thought in his mind where he was like, look, I can take my wife out, (laughs) you know, and just leave, this would be the perfect way to do so. Yeah, like he was trying to, in a certain way, navigate his exit from the family. Right, and like faking his own death. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, he doesn't have cancer. And that's why during the, the meeting about the will, now Alexis and her mother never shared this with anyone, and they didn't share with Martin that they knew he didn't have cancer. Okay. So when he was holding this meeting about the will, they just kept looking at each other like... This is so bizarre. He's really sticking with this story that he's dying. And that's kind of why they didn't get massively upset about Alexis being the executor and Michelle not because they knew this wasn't true. And they were just seeing how Martin was playing this out. Okay. I mean, it makes sense. You don't want to stir it up and kind of let it out of the bag just yet. Yeah. I just find this to be so weird because now you're sharing a bed with this man that's lying to everyone and taking things really far. And changing his appearance and like, it's just weird. I feel like she's laying in bed with a stranger. Well, I think, I think that like up to this point, I mean, he has shown signs of just being very weird. Like, I yeah. I mean, think about it. It's not like he's going from this wonderful husband, this loving, wonderful husband that, that you just love to be around. And then all of a sudden in the, with a snap of your fingers, he's fine. I mean, he's different. No, I agree with you. I think that he t- totally has kind of always been off he's just an off character yeah so alexis also told them that she thought that their father had killed their mother after her surgery martin was not taking good care of michelle alexis had stayed with her mother while she had been at the hospital for her overnight stay and was there when she was discharged the next day she took careful care of her mother After the first 24-hour shift of helping feed, bathe, and administer her mother's medication, Martin told his daughter to get some rest 
and that he would take over and care for Michelle for the night. So Alexis figured this was okay. Obviously, her dad's a doctor. And Alexis returned the next morning at about 6 a.m. And she found her mother unresponsive. When she finally woke up, Michelle was barely coherent. It was clear that she had taken too much medication. Alexis confronted her father and Martin told her nonchalantly that he may have given her too much medication. Okay, weird. She was furious and told him that from now on, she was going to be giving her mother her medicine. She said later, when the effects of the medication wore off, that Michelle told her the night before her father just kept giving her pills and she told him that she didn't need any more, but he was insistent and kept feeding her the medication and forcing her to swallow water and checking that the medicine was gone. It's very strange. And like I said, it makes you feel like he's trying to kill her. Yeah. He told her that she needed the pills and she said that she was nervous. So she asked Alexis to show her what each pill was, explain to her what it did, and to put the pills in her hand so she could learn to differentiate the size and feel of the pills so she knew what Martin was trying to give her when she wasn't there. It's pretty smart. Yeah, but terrifying. Unnecessary, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So then Alexis confessed that when she was washing her mother's hair later that day, she told her, If anything ever happens to me, make sure it wasn't your father first. Ooh. Okay, so she had an idea that something might be going on. Right, and then something does happen to her mother. So now this poor girl feels like, I need to fight for my mom. Like, even though the medical examiner said she died of natural causes, I need to do this for my mother because I know what happened. Yeah. So the sisters were, of course, shocked by this information But at the same time, they weren't. They knew the eccentricities and the strangeness of their father well. And they, with Alexis in the lead, wanted to take all of this information to detectives. There was no way their mother was not murdered by their father. But there was so much that they didn't know. In the midst of the girls thinking that their father was a murderer, they had to help him deal with the fact that his wife was now dead And something would have to be done about the child care. Currently, Alexis was in the house and Rachel had volunteered to help care for the girls and take them to school and ballet while they were all figuring out the situation. Because Rachel's apartment is pretty close to the house. Martin seemed insistent on the fact that the girls needed to hire a nanny for him because he worked too many hours and they couldn't consistently be there. Like eventually everyone's lives would go on. So he was really pushing for a nanny. One day, Martin asked Rachel to accompany him to the temple so they could pray on what to do about the child care situation. Because Alexis really didn't want a nanny to be in the house. She thought that her father should maybe cut back on his hours and they could just share the responsibilities. So Rachel thought that this was strange because she didn't know her father to be really spiritual. She'd always felt like he was a part of the church more for the status and power than the faith. But she went with him anyway. While they were walking through the parking lot to get to the temple, 
they were approached by a young brunette woman. She told him that she had attended Michelle's funeral and because she was also a member of the church and that she was really sorry for their loss and that if there was anything that she could do, she would be happy to help. Martin told the woman that she looked familiar, that he had seen her at the services before, but didn't know her name. Jillian, she told him. Jillian Willis. He let her know that he had actually gone to the temple to pray for a solution for childcare, so he might take her up on her offer to help them. Rachel thought this situation was weird, so she went home to tell her sister Alexis, who obviously had been opposed to her father hiring a live-in nanny for the girls. When Alexis heard the story, she was livid. She told her father that he absolutely could not hire that woman. I know who she is, Dad. Gypsy Jill Willis. That's the woman Mom thought you were having an affair with. The number that you were calling at 3 a.m. And the one that worked at his office? Yes. Oh, my God. Okay. So it was like, Dad, like... We know that you planned that meeting. Like, you never want to go to the temple to pray on things, and you just happened to meet her in the parking lot? Lies. <laughs> <laughs> I, and, and what disrespect that is, too. The freaking audacity of it all yeah. is just so insane. Yeah. What? I mean, I don't throw anything past this guy. Like, like in a way, nothing's a shock, because he's just, like, sick and demented at this point. But, like, the arrogance to think that would work, you know? It's insulting to his daughter's intelligence. Well, let's all let's also not forget. I mean, you know, he's a guy. You know? I know, I know. A guy with power, guy with money. This is and and a guy that doesn't care anymore. No, it's true. But despite his daughter's protest, one week later, Martin hired Gypsy to be the live-in nanny for his adopted daughters and Ada. This is the situation that threw the sisters over the edge, as you can imagine. Their mother had just died. They think their father killed her, and now his girlfriend is the live-in nanny. This is a movie. Uh, it, it actually has become a movie. Oh, you, I think you said that last time. Yeah. Is it like a Lifetime movie? Yes, it was a Lifetime movie. Because it sounds like a Lifetime movie. Yes. Most cases that we cover do sound like Lifetime movies. Or that one movie with them. Um, I can't think of it right now. I'll, we'll get back to it. But Okay. You put it on could, the back burner? Yeah, if I could remember, I'll, I'll let you know. Okay. I'll let everyone know. <laughs> So they knew their father was up to something. So they went out and they spoke to everyone they could. They found out from others that when Michelle's body was found, that Martin kept yelling at her about the surgery, asking her why she had to get the treatment done. And they found this strange that people were saying this because it was actually Martin that had encouraged Michelle to get the facelift. In the book, The Stranger She Loved, It was revealed that two days after Michelle had confronted Martin with the T-Mobile bill that he was calling Gypsy Willis, that her and Alexis, you know, were able to find through snooping, that Martin told Michelle the next day, after he promised he would stop talking to her, you know what? You should get a facelift. Hmm. And when she got offended, he reworded it by saying, no, he wanted to gift her a facelift. So this would be like kind of like their new start. Weird. Uh, I don't I don't 
understand that. If I caught my husband cheating and then he was saying, oh, no, I'll stop. But, like, you got to get a facelift. I'd be like, <laughs> what? Well, don't worry. None of those things will happen. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and by the way, for the record, I always tell I always tell Kay, in the future, no, no, no surgeries. Please, you don't need to alter anything because you're beautiful the way you are and I love you. And I always stand behind that. So, you know. People that maybe down the road I might need some Botox. Uh, we'll cross that bridge <laughs> when we get there. But you could do whatever you want. Thanks. I'll get two facelifts. No. <laughs> <laughs> but this time, like the confrontation, and this is why I think Michelle said yes to the facelift. The confrontation about the affair went differently. When Michelle confronted Martin about the affair, he didn't do what he had done their whole marriage beg her to stay, threaten to kill himself. Instead, he was kind of cold. He told her that he wasn't in love with her anymore, um, that he never wanted to adopt the girls. And, like, he would stop talking to her and stay, but he kind of was admitting that he wasn't happy. So the next day when Martin proposed a facelift, Michelle felt like it was something she needed to do to keep up with Martin, who wasn't happy and was working on his appearance. That's really sad. It's really sad. And especially, you know, I know Michelle always really valued the fact that she was beautiful. I mean, she was like a beauty queen. So for her husband to tell her she wasn't beautiful, that must have really hurt her. But he reassured her that it would make her feel better about herself. So why had Martin continued to scream at Michelle about having the surgery and suggested that she was the one who pushed for her to have it when really she was the one who was apprehensive about doing it. Right. Which means that somehow if I was just staring at that, like her very specific request to have this operation done, right? I feel like there's a lot drawn to it. Yeah. Like there's a lot of emphasis and, and, and things being drawn to that. Like make sure you're getting this surgery yeah. done. So which so what it indicates to me that he might have thought if she has this there could be complications or i could use this to my advantage to take her out so that's kind of what's happening here like that's what i feel like is happening here okay maybe i'm wrong no i mean i think all answers point to yes at this point yeah so now with their mother just buried and their father's mistress now living in the house that their mother decorated and lived in and was most likely murdered in the girls started a blog with their aunt their mother's sister, Linda, asking anyone with information regarding their father, their mother, or what could have happened to her to please contact them. Quickly, the blog gained traction, and the sisters learned about the many affairs of their father. So he's been doing this for years, having affairs. So the women take all of this information in. And they compile it and bring it to the police. But unfortunately, because of the medical examiner's report, no murder, no homicide, they can't do anything about it. And this is something that causes a rift between the sisters and their brother, Damien. Damien chose to support his father. He felt that he was not capable of doing something like that. And if his father was saying it wasn't true, then he was choosing to believe him. Now, also around this time, you have to imagine that things are so complicated 
within the McNeil family because you have the sisters advocating for people to come forward about information about Martin and all the affairs he's having. But Alexis and Rachel are in and out of the house all the time because they don't trust Gypsy raising their sisters and niece. So they're at the house as much as possible. But that's super uncomfortable, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. So around this time, this is May of 2007, Alexis was staying at the house to help care for her sisters. And on May 23rd, Alexis, you know, in the process of getting her sisters ready for school, taking them to ballet, helping with the housework, the cooking, the cleaning, even though Gypsy was a full-time nanny, she didn't really do a lot of that work, uh, Alexis decided to take a nap in her parents' bed. She woke up to her father rubbing her backside and licking and kissing her hand. I'm sorry. His daughter, right? His daughter. Okay, this is strange. When she was startled by this, he apologized and said that he thought she was her mother. Okay. So he was trying to downplay it. Very weird. Yes. Alexis kind of got into a bit of an altercation with her father, and she never spent a night at the house again, but she continued caring for her siblings. And this event that occurred with her father, this sexual assault, because that's what it was, is going to come up later in the episode. So we're just going to kind of put a pause on that taking place. But there is going to be a police report filed by Alexis. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. I know. I just feel like no matter what you do, there's a curveball thrown at you in this episode. It's it's crazy. So although the investigators had their hands tied with the ruling of the Emmy, the McNeil sisters and their aunt were relentless. Alexis told her sisters and other family members about what happened, but it was only her sisters and aunt that believed her. I think this also adds some validity to the accusations about the adopted daughter, by the way, like going back to the sexual assault. Yeah. Makes it seem a little more real here. So all the women begged investigators to just look at the information that they had. And honestly, in just looking through a quarter of the information that the women had compiled, the detectives were compelled to look further into Martin McNeil because this was all very suspicious. When they did that, they found something quite interesting. First, his military past and then his medical degree. Yes. Martin loved his forgeries. Not only had he forged checks in his past, but he forged academic documents. He had made most of the transcripts that got him into medical school up completely. He forged um, some accolades that happened in his military past. As we know, he really didn't have any true time in the military because he had left both the Marines and the Army. And he forged classes that he took, grades that he got, and the dates that all of these um, degrees occurred between. So wait, hold on a minute. <laughs> Let me just try to wrap my mind around this. Yeah. So are you trying to tell me that like he's not really a doctor? He is a doctor, 
But to get into medical school, he forged a lot of his undergraduate things to make him look more appealing to his medical school. Oh, okay. Well, it's still pretty bad, though. <laughs> yes, yes. That's pretty bad. And that's most likely why, looking back at it, he had to leave some of the programs that he did. Right. So he was not the guy that he was projecting himself to be. But again, they were all stuck because although that could cost him his license, potentially, it didn't prove that he killed his wife or change the fact that her death was ruled to have been caused by natural circumstances. So for two years, Michelle's daughters are powerless, while Martin and Gypsy live together in peace in the home on North Mill Creek Road. Well, that is until they are both arrested in January of 2009. What? What did they do? Well, not murder. Damn. <laughs> so this is bad. And it's something that goes back to... And it's just as bad as what happened to Noelle. Remember the first of the adopted daughters in part one where she was left in Michigan? Yeah. Where we left off, the adopted daughters of the McNeils, um, the younger two are Ellen and Sabrina. They were thriving, remember? But Giselle, now the oldest, had a hard time adjusting. And Giselle had fallen even further out of favor with Martin because... Just before Michelle's surgery, they all had a sealing ceremony where Elle and Sabrina chose the Mormon faith and were sealing themselves to the McNeil family. Because, like, if you have your marriage sealed, your children go through a seal sealing ceremony, but they kind of automatically do it. But the adopted children are choosing to do it. So it was this really special moment. But Giselle chose not to become Mormon and not to participate in the sealing ceremony. Okay. And that's probably why So she was like the black sheep. Yeah. So in late 2008, when it was really kind of just Martin and Gypsy taking care of the children. So now that means that's four children. That's Giselle, L, Sabrina, and Ada. In late 2008, Martin sent 16 year old Giselle back to the Ukraine for a month to visit with her sister. Okay. But once she was there, he stopped speaking with her and would not buy her a plane ticket back. She was stuck there. And he eventually told her he didn't want her coming back. So it was pretty much just a way for her to get rid of, uh, for him to get rid of her. Yeah. Oh my, what, what is wrong with this guy? This is crazy. But, you know, now is the question is why? Why did they want to get rid of Giselle? And Martin and Gypsy had a really good reason as to why they wanted to get rid of Giselle. She probably knew something. No. Oh, okay. That would have been good, though. Giselle had called Michelle's sisters to let her know what Martin had done. He left her in the Ukraine, and she believed it was all a scheme to steal her identity. Oh, Okay. And she would be correct in doing that. And she would be correct in thinking that because Martin used Giselle's social security number for Gypsy. And that's because Gypsy had an interesting past. So let's just delve a little bit into Gypsy Willis for a second. Uh, Gypsy was born to Mormon parents who were super strict. She had two brothers and her father was studying to become a doctor. 
She originally wanted to become a nurse, so she began to attend college for that. But in the summer before her sophomore year of college, she got pregnant. The father of the child did not want to be involved, and her parents were disappointed with her and lost she lost favor with them for doing this because she wasn't following like the Mormon principles of not having sex before you were married. Okay. So Gypsy got married at 20, but two years later, the marriage ended in divorce, making her relationship worse with her parents. So not only had she had a child out of wedlock, but she has gone through a divorce. So she was completely shunned by them. She signed over her rights of her daughter to her parents. Isn't that interesting? It's really interesting. Wait. So think about this. Talk about daddy issues. Okay. So Gypsy has really strict parents. She's always trying to impress her father who was becoming a doctor. So she tried to become a nurse to impress him. Doesn't work. And then her father, who's a doctor, ends up adopting her child, just like Martin did with his daughter. Oh. It's the same situation. So, like, see, it makes you think that this guy, he, like, he, like, lurks for people who have these, like, issues that he can, like, kind of persuade and do what he needs. You totally hit the nail on the head because... What the girls are going to find out is that all of the women that Martin has had affairs with throughout his life with Michelle, it's women that are widows, just gone through a traumatic divorce, have something happening in their life. Like he kind of like preys upon them. But I feel like with Gypsy Willis, he kind of met his match and like she's a schemer and he's a schemer. And that's why it kind of becomes explosive here a little bit. But it's sick because it's almost like he's having his relationship with Gypsy is like mirroring his daughter. It's like him being in a relationship with his daughter. And like for her, it's like her being in a relationship with her father. It's very weird. It's very bizarre. Very weird. But anyway, after her parents get custody, she goes a little wild. She really leaned into her name there. And during this time, she admitted that she protested the government charging its citizens so much taxes so she decided not to pay them oh that that works i wish that was like a real life option man i I would me too that would be great (laughs) well this was all catching up to her now she not only owed the irs taxes but she also owed the interest on them so from just her taxes that was about fifty thousand dollars And for someone who was back in nursing school, it seemed like a lot of money. But on top of that, she also owed um, a substantial amount in credit cards. I believe it was around 50. It's different. The accounts are different in various sources. Some say 50, some say 75,000. But she owed 100,000 or more. So they figured that they would do this. But it's bizarre Martin could have just paid these debts off for her, something that he was more than financially capable of doing. But he chose instead to send his 16-year-old adopted daughter out of the country so he could steal her social security number and give it to his girlfriend, who is now his kid's nanny. Like, what? You know, at that point, I think it's less about, like, 
how do I put this? It's it's for them. It's the thrill of going out of their way to to do this, and to in his eyes probably to kill two birds with one stone, carry out this plot to send the daughter back, and then by doing that, you're getting rid of her as well. Right. It's one less person that's around. One less person to have to worry about. One less person to literally take care of. So we'll just do that. You know what I mean? Like, it's not about, oh, uh, we're going to do the harder option. It's really the most thrilling uh, option to do. Right. And the thrill of getting away with it. Yeah. And him feeling like he's so smart that he was able to do this. I agree. It's his arrogance. I agree. So using this new social security number, Gypsy renamed herself Jillian McNeil. And the two claimed that they were married by falsifying documents, which I don't get. Just just get married. But like you said, it's the thrill of it all. But you know the date they picked for their wedding day? Don't tell me it's the date of his wife's death. The date of her funeral. Oh, my. Jeez. Like, I don't even know what to say to that. Yeah. Their wedding day was the same as Michelle McNeil's funeral day. Um, and not to mention, at Michelle's funeral, Martin and Gypsy exchanged several sexually explicit text messages at the funeral. Right. I mean, look, Ugh. he obviously doesn't care. There's no there's no low that this guy has not reached. Like, it's just he's done every horrific thing possible. It's true. And I've never like. It's rare when, like, someone does all these things, but it engulfs the entire family and brings them into it. Yeah. Like, that normally doesn't take place all the time. But, like, he's so sick and twisted that it's it, it, it takes over everything. Anybody that's in his life, right. in his circle. It's weird. He's, he's a true villain. Yeah. When this was all discovered, the couple was arrested for fraud. Because, like, you can't really just get away with that. Martin pleaded guilty to all charges in order to get a reduced sentence. Eventually, he got four years in federal prison. Gypsy got 21 months in prison, but only if she would agree to testify against him during any future legal action. And this is something that's going to be helpful later on. During this trial, the sisters are, of course, appalled at what Martin did to Giselle and what had been done for Gypsy. This, they felt, was only further proof that their father was guilty. Their brother felt differently. He again chose to remain loyal to his father, still trying to think the best of the man that raised him. But now with Martin and Gypsy in jail, the McNeil children were having a really troubling time, and the strain amongst the siblings was intense. And I don't know if that's what caused this to take place or was a factor in it. But in January of 2010, Damien McNeil committed suicide. That's really unfortunate. That's really sad. And we do know he has a history of bipolar disorder and his depressive states were always very low. And I'm sure this added stress of this trial for his father, the death of his mother, the complicated relationship he had with his siblings. It's just really sad because now the McNeil family, they've lost Michelle and they've lost Damien. Yeah, that's really sad. I mean, maybe he felt, you know, that he was losing his support system, you know? Yeah. 
you know, it's it's sad. I mean, and, and in a way, he was. I mean, because he is the father. He th- and the father never did anything wrong to him that I could recall. No, I mean, you well, know? we don't really know we too don't much know. about yeah, it. That's but true too. I but if there's nothing terrible. to report, I mean, one would one would assume just a, you know slightly that what he might have endured it was less than the other children in the house. Well, definitely, I feel like the relationship between father and son is different than father and daughter. Especially, Especially somebody like him. Yeah, and when you're the only son, you know. Yeah. So the detectives that had read the reports that the McNeil girls had compiled wanted to take advantage of the fact that Gypsy would have to talk to them if they wanted to ask her questions about Martin. Now, because he didn't really have the charges against him, there wasn't too much they could press her on, but they wanted to put their feelers out there. The only thing that she gave them was the fact that the chance meeting at the temple parking lot to discuss the nanny job was a scripted setup. Thanks, Gypsy. We we figured that one out. We knew that already. Thanks. (laughs) When the detectives brought that piece of information and the prospect that Gypsy could potentially have more information out there, the prosecutor again told them, you're fighting a losing battle because of the medical examiner's report. You're going to have to find a crazy amount of evidence to contradict the medical examiner's report because a good defense lawyer would just say, there's no, there's no homicide here. Yeah. But by this time, there was a new medical examiner presiding over the county. So the detectives, who were convinced at this point to find something here because they knew it was really fishy, they showed the medical examiner what they had found so far. And they asked the medical examiner to just go over Michelle McNeil's file. It just didn't make sense. Before her surgery, she had gone to a doctor to have her heart checked out because she was nervous about the surgery. And she got a clean bill of health. Her blood pressure was only slightly elevated. At first, the new medical examiner didn't want to read the file. But after some heavy coaxing from the detectives, he decided to take a look at the first few pages. And from there, he made an assessment as to whether or not he would read further on. Well, after reading the first few pages of the original medical examiner's report, the new one stopped. He looked at the detectives and said, I think I want to look this over for myself. Okay, this is a good sign. After reexamining all of the evidence, the cause of death was changed from natural causes to undetermined by the new examiner. He told the detectives that he could not change the cause of death to homicide because there was no true evidence there that it had taken place. But now... You know, this opens the door because it's not natural causes. Right. So, like, if they were to ever present or find any evidence in the future, that undetermined status could probably be changed to a homicide with the proper uh, evidence. Correct. Which is good. Yes. So, now that happened in the spring of 2011. And from then until the summer of 2012, when Martin was released from federal prison, they worked to build their evidence against him for a murder charge. Once released from prison, he was arrested for first-degree murder of his wife. Oh, my God. (laughs) In the late summer and autumn of 2013, Martin McNeil stood trial. 
and what a trial it was. Many of the shocking details that we discussed in part one and now part two came out during the trial. So I won't repeat any of that stuff because you know all those insane details. But what I do want to go over is the new information and timeline that gets presented during the trial and what Martin's defense team had to say about it all. The courtroom was a tense scene. At this point, the McNeil sisters and their mother's sister, their aunt, had lost everything. They lost their mother and sister, and they had lost their only brother and nephew. And they believed it was all because of Martin. So in the first row, the sisters sat holding up large pictures of their mother as their father was escorted into the courtroom. It's pretty powerful. It's like a powerful scene there. No, it's intense. Yeah. So first, let's take you through the prosecution's arguments. The first thing that was attacked was Martin's alibi. His defense was claiming that because he was at a conference and then he had to pick up Ada from school, that he couldn't have done whatever he was accused of doing to his wife. However, the detectives in 2007 found that there was a missing gap in his timeline between 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. During that time, he had stopped calling and texting Gypsy, and no one had seen him until 11 a.m. when he showed up at work and then his daughter's school. Both locations are within three miles of his home. So the argument was that he left the conference at around 9.30. He went home, returned back to work at 11 a.m., left at 11.45, and then went to go pick up Ada. So in between 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. was when he may have done something to his wife. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely an ample amount of time to carry out a, um, you know, murder. Or whatever he did. Or whatever he did. did. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, everything was within three miles of each other. So it wasn't like there were far drives that needed to take place. Right. Next was the discovery. All three neighbors were brought in to testify that they had seen Michelle fully submerged in the tub, which contradicts the story Martin had told. Testimony was also given through old interviews that Ada had done with a child psychiatrist where she drew pictures of her mother being in the tub with her head near the faucet. And the picture, I've seen it, it's like so sad. The girl draws her mother in the tub, facing upward. Her, She said her eyes were open and her head was near the faucet. Wow. It was, it's very detailed. But of those four testimonials, the most interesting was that of Doug Daniels. If you remember, he was the neighbor that helped Martin take Michelle out of the tub and helped him administer most of the CPR that was done to her that day. Doug stated that he was bewildered during the time, and not just because Martin kept screaming at his wife, but because he expected the doctor to be better at CPR. He noted that when it came time for Martin to breathe into Michelle's mouth after he had performed the chest compressions, her chest never rose meaning her lungs were never being filled with air. And when Martin pulled away from his wife, none of the mucus or blood that covered her face transferred onto Martin's, meaning that he potentially was not performing the breaths for Michelle's CPR. 
Right, which we kind of had a feeling in the be- in the first part that he might not have been doing Anything. the right type of, you know, pr- your procedural um, CPR. Right, he wasn't doing it correctly. Then Doug went on to say that when the paramedics got there and they did CPR, her chest did rise. And that the second they did that was when water came up. And a lot of it, he said. So it's kind of like, well, as soon as the paramedics came and did it the right way, Michelle's body reacted. Right, which means he probably didn't, he either did it wrong on purpose or did absolutely nothing. Yeah. Then there were a lot of anecdotal statements made by witnesses that said during the funeral, Martin said inappropriate things. Like he would have to get used to the life of a bachelor and he was almost jovial at the funeral. That there was no sense of mourning there. After this came the time in court that everyone was waiting for. Gypsy Willis was coming to testify. She explained that her and Martin had met online and things became sexual over time. Now, it was clear that she didn't want to testify against Martin. She was still very much in love with him. It was obvious, but she had to testify or she was going to serve more time on the fraud case. So although she was saying these things, she was trying to kind of play down their relationship and be nondescript as possible. She did admit to having a long-time affair with Martin and that she did attend Michelle's funeral. And during the funeral, she did send him naked pictures of herself that day and she texted him throughout the event. Ugh. Like, that sounds like... It makes your skin crawl. It does. Because, like, what kind of person are you... Like, listen, we all know what kind of person Martin is. But, like, you know what you're doing. You know you're at a funeral. You know that you're, you know, you're having an affair with this guy. Like, it's just, it also brings her, like, her, you know, her into question. Like, I don't know. I know that she is with him and maybe there's some sort of, for lack of a better term right now, brainwashing or there's something going on there maybe. Yeah. But I don't know. It's just You, you got to know what's right or wrong a little bit. Well, I think there's a little bit of um, implication here because... Even if she were to be having an affair with Martin, his wife did die. So, I mean, we could say there's a lack of respect, period, but there's no shock here. So it made people question Gypsy's involvement. Right. So she said she was hired two weeks after Michelle passed to be the nanny. She was then asked about her duties as a nanny, and this was something that had stemmed from Martin's daughters because she kind of laughed on the stand and said, well, if Martin's daughters are staying and living there, I don't need to do the cooking and cleaning. They do. So they wouldn't have seen me do it. And um, basically, like the prosecutors were saying, you were hired as a nanny, but you weren't doing any nannying work. And she's kind of laughing it off which did not make her appear very good on the stand. She did admit to falsifying documents to say that they were married and to get rid of her tax and credit card debt. And the date they chose was the day of Michelle's funeral. She was trying to minimize their whole relationship, and it's pretty clear that at best there was a strong motive for murder, right? Them being together. And at worst... She could have been involved in the plot. Both things, not good. I mean, yeah, both of them are good. And I would probably say she is involved in, in the in the plot. Yeah. How could she not be? 
Well, this was really big for prosecutors because they were saying this is one of the motives for Michelle's murder was because Martin wanted to go on living this life with Gypsy. And once Michelle was out of the picture, that was the plan that he went on doing. Right. Now, after the testimony of Gypsy, another woman took the stand. Another one? The mistress before Gypsy. Ooh, okay. This woman's name was Anna Walthall, and she has some very interesting things to say. She said she met Martin in 2004 while she was running a med spa in the area. Because it was a med spa, she needed to have a consulting physician, and Dr. McNeil was that for her. At the time, she'd been going through a difficult divorce, and he was there for her. Kind of like I said before, like Martin always picked women that were vulnerable. Right. Well, their relationship turned sexual very quickly. And it was not long after that that Martin began expressing his homicidal urges to Anna. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. I wish that I was making this all up. I don't think I could make this all up. No. He said that he had dealt with lifelong struggle to try and keep his homicidal rages down. He told her that the first time he had tried to kill someone was 1964, when he was eight years old. You believe that? I Listen to this story. Okay. His mother had passed out from drinking again, and he was upset by this. So he went into the kitchen and crushed up all of the medication he could find in the house and put them in a drink. He woke his mother up, had her... Like, he was like, oh, you need to drink something to feel better. So she took a sip of this drink and he watched as his mother went back to sleep. And as the minutes passed, her breathing became more and more labored until they stopped altogether. Okay, so I believe that because that's probably exactly what he did to his wife. Well, we don't know if that's exactly what he did to his wife because, remember, they said it was therapeutic doses of the medicine. I know. I know. I know. It's so, it's like, what happened? But it is weird, though, that he, I mean, obviously, he's eight years old. I I mean, I do understand that. Jesus. But there is a weird correlation that he's using prescription drugs to carry out acts of violence on people. This is insane. I was watching Sailor Moon. I wasn't trying to kill my mother. Yeah, like, I was sitting there, you know, Saturday morning cartoons, fruit, (laughs) Fruit Loops or Fruity Pebbles, you know? I just... Some people, I don't know. But his mother did stop breathing, but what saved her was his older sister came home and realized her mother wasn't breathing, so she called 911. And in a very interesting development here, this was considered one of his mother's suicide attempts because she had attempted suicide several times. Do we know if she attempted suicide several times or it was her homicidal child we don't know (laughs) that's a good point i mean geez that is a very very good point so when she asked him like did you feel bad after you did it and his reply to her was i only felt bad there wasn't more medication in the house what yeah and then you keep having an affair with this dude like i can't (laughs) what i can't so he also told her that he had killed his brother. Really? He did kill his brother. When he had gone back to New Jersey, he went to visit his mother and siblings. And at the time, his brother was addicted to drugs. 
He said that he walked into the bathroom and found his brother passed out in the tub. His brother had a history of self-harm, and he had superficially cut his wrists. Not in a suicide attempt, but in a self-harm episode. Okay. So Martin told Anna that his brother was strung out, like he was really high, and he held him under the tub until he stopped struggling. Wait, stop. No way. And his death had been ruled a suicide. Oh, my God. Okay, wait a minute. He used the tub again. Oh, my God. He used the tub again. So, hold on a minute here. Um, Let's just try to piece this together a little bit, okay? Both things, like the, the attempt to kill his mother, and if he did do this to his brother, these are both potential ways... That his daughters think Michelle died. Right. And if anything, he Ugh. just got really proficient at, at, like, hiding, at, like, making it look like it was, like, normal. And he told Anna um, all of this before this happened with Michelle. So, like, had this been the plan the whole time? Well, I mean, I think he's smart enough to carry it out. But that's insane. We have two cases here where he has told somebody that he tried to kill his mother... And that he killed his brother. Wait, it gets, it gets worse. Oh no! Okay. He told Anna that his favorite way that he he killed some of his patients. He said, "What?" And his favorite way to cause death was to inject potassium into the victim because it makes them look like they had a heart attack. Yeah. And it couldn't come up on the autopsy. And what was Michelle's original cause of death? Heart disease. Yeah, heart Now, that's interesting because <sighs> I do know that that is that's a possibility. Oh, no, 100%. Like, I've known that for a long time. But what's interesting is that I'm sure a healthy or normal dose of potassium or, you know, or whatever can cause a heart attack in someone that's already ailing from hypertension and high blood pressure. Oh, I'm sure. And... I'm sure her blood pressure might have been a little high in thinking that her husband that's having an affair was trying to kill her. Would well, yeah. might raise one's blood pressure. I mean, but hold on. These are these are really startling facts that we're finding out about him. Very, and that's why Anna was like a phenomenal find. And she really had contacted the McNeil girls when they put the blog up. Okay. So they had known about Anna and all of these facts for quite some time, which is why they were so aggressively going after their father. Wow. So he said that he had murdered several patients who had been suffering and that he even published an anonymous article in a medical journal about mercy killings. So then an article was put into evidence by the prosecution. It was an article called It's Over, Debbie which was written by an anonymous medical resident published in the American Medical Association's medical journal. So he basically wrote about how she was dying of cancer, this woman, and he administered medication so she passed away peacefully. Now, okay. we don't know how much of this is true. We don't know if the attempt at the mother, if he killed his brother or if he killed patients. Okay. We do know that he'd had to leave many medical practices and that he was 
accused of misconduct and mistreatment, but nothing further came out. We do also know that for a very short period of time, Dr. Martin McNeil worked with Dr. Jack Kevorkian, also known as Dr. Death, who was the American pathologist who was um, known as a proponent for euthanasia and the completion of that. That is extremely, that right there is an extremely interesting fact. Yes. That they, that they work together at some point. And Martin would also often joke that, oh, Jack didn't start that until he met me. Which well, is definitely his, just his arrogance. Yeah. But like the fact that he would joke about it and then later say that he did do it. Like, is this just a fantasy in Martin's mind because he worked with someone that became bigger than him? Like he always has to be on top. I, I don't know. I don't know how much of this is true. I hope none of it is true. Well, uh, I think I feel like it's safe to say that when you deal with someone that has done the things that Martin has done, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that there's escalation to those things. Yeah. Right. You start out doing, you know, A, B and C. Those things have to escalate at some point. They have to. You can't just be satisfied with what you're doing because the schemes get greater. You know, think about it. He starts with forging checks. Then it's, you know, full-blown Social Security plans, you know, and and marital certificates and all this other stuff. Like, there's an escalation to him. Now, I wonder now, would that translate to him murdering family members and patients and other things of that nature? I think that he definitely saw weakness in his mother, his brother, and later his daughter Vanessa in their addiction, and he punished them for it. Oh, yeah. And like you said earlier, or we kind of both uh, hit on it, he really does prey on the weak and the people who have had rough, rough goes of life. Right. So I don't know. I would just think that there has to be some form of escalation, you know, to for him to, to do those things. But I think he's capable of it. Yeah. This is terrifying. It is. Yeah. Anna's testimony totally, like, blew everything out of the water. Everyone was excited for Gypsy Willis to take the stand. And then this woman took the stand. And it was like, holy crap. That's like when you go to, like, a concert and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm here to see the the main act. And then the the side act just becomes like... So much better. Yeah, 100%. So Anna also admitted that Martin's talk, although very scary, was exciting. So she didn't know what was true or what was fantasy. She said they were involved in a lot of role playing and that the couple was always involved in, like, rough sex. So she really took a lot of his talk about this stuff to be foreplay versus truth. Which is a whole also gross. You know what? Maybe maybe she thought it was role playing, but he was giving the truth. Or maybe he exaggerated things. Or that. So her final piece of information was that Martin told her that if he was ever arrested for murder, that he would not claim insanity because he always knows what he is doing. Eventually, the affair ended when Anna had to claim bankruptcy for her med spa and had to move out of the area. From that point, Martin quickly moved on to Gypsy Willis. All right. Alexis Summers, um, Martin's daughter. Yes, Alexis changed her last name to her mother's maiden name. 
she is going to take the stand to discuss everything that her mother shared with her the morning after Martin had been put in charge of taking care of her after surgery. So that's regarding the pills that he was feeding to her. And upon cross-examination, Martin's defense tried to trip Alexis up because at the funeral, she was telling people like all was well. And she said that the reason why she told people at the funeral all was well was because she didn't want to tarnish her mother's memory by speaking about what had happened to her at the funeral to strangers, which makes sense. Now, Alexis had also filed charges against her father for sexual assault for the incidents that occurred in her parents' bed in May of 2007. But those charges were pending while he was facing murder charges. So it was implied through questioning that she was trying to take her father down any way she could. Like, they were asking her questions about the sexual assault. But then that got shut down by the prosecution pretty quickly. Finally, the Emmy was called and the defense tried to claim that the detectives pushed the Emmy too hard to change the cause of death. The defense tried to call witnesses that confirmed Martin's alibi. However, even with their testimony, there was still a long period of time that's unaccounted for. So basically, the defense in their closing said that Martin McNeil was not a good man. He made many mistakes, but being a liar and a cheat doesn't make you a murderer that here there was a lot of reasonable doubt. And, like, I can see that although, like, so much of the circumstantial evidence points to Martin, like, it's unbelievable, the physical evidence is very lacking. I think the closest we get to physical evidence is the testimony of Doug Daniels saying that he was not administering CPR. I would have to agree with you. I mean, there's really nothing else to really look at, uh, you know, as far as physical evidence is concerned. Everything else is eyewitness testimony and, you know, other stuff that might not really, you know, convict him of murder. After 11 hours of deliberation, a jury came back with a verdict. Martin McNeil was guilty of first degree murder. Oh, wow. Okay. Martin was sentenced to 17 years to life in prison. About a month after his sentencing, Martin ripped the blade out of his disposable razor and sliced into his femoral artery in his upper thigh. It was believed that he did this to avoid the next trial. The um, trial of the sexual assault against his daughter. But he survived this suicide attempt And he did have to face the charges of sexual assault against his daughter, Alexis. And in that trial, he was found guilty, also by a jury, and was sentenced to an additional 1 to 15 years. Wow, so he got got it all. Yep. Alexis was given the home in Pleasant Grove under the Slayer statue, which um, is when one of your parents kills the other parent. It's given to the executor of the will, the home. He had tried to leave it to Gypsy. Of course. Didn't happen. So she planned to split the proceeds amongst all of her siblings. But the house, although beautiful, has been hard to sell, as you can imagine. And it's it hasn't taken off the market. It never sold. That's interesting. If you it's actually pretty eerie. If you look up the home address, it's it's on Zillow and Realtor.com and 
you can even see the bathroom. It's it's a little creepy. Well, I know who would not be living in there, and that is me. Yeah, yeah. Pretty. You could probably get a pretty good deal though. I don't care. I okay. I would. It was a dollar. No, could you? The stuff that went down in that house, that poor family. Yep, that's why I wouldn't want it. Oh, you know what? I agree with you on that one. I wouldn't want this one. Not even for a dollar. I don't know. That's a little tempting. <laughs> I mean, a dollar. I mean, I buy it for a dollar, but I'm not going to live in it. <laughs> For a dollar, you can afford to knock it down and build something else and then sell it. I still wouldn't want to be in there. So the custody of the adopted McNeil children and Ada went to Alexis. And Rachel does also play a large role in raising them, as does Vanessa later on. At 60 years old, on April 9th, 2017, Martin McNeil committed suicide by using a hose and a natural gas line that was intended for a heater inside a greenhouse at a federal prison to kill himself. At a prison to kill himself. He had positioned himself in a way that would prevent the cameras from seeing him. Although we will never know what really happened with Martin's brother, with Martin's suicide, that means three of the six children, Martin included, committed suicide. Meaning Martin... We don't know if his brother really committed suicide, but he also had a sister that committed suicide. And then later his son committed suicide. So it's um, very interesting, the, the family history that we see here. It's tragic. It's That's why I called the episode The Tragedy of the McNeil Family, because I yeah. feel like it just encompasses everything. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, and, you know... It's also like the siblings, they went through so much. But I think, you know, one thing to take out of this case is the strength of the McNeil sisters and what an amazing job Michelle did at raising her children, that they are so strong and came together and advocated for her so well. I agree with you. So I think it's a really strong testament to the woman that she was. Yeah. And, you know, we're left with, in this insane case, the, like, the thought process of, you know, what role did Gypsy really play in this? And did Martin do more? Uh, you know, allegedly, that's what Anna, his first mistress, said. Well, not his first mistress. One of many. It's hard to say. I would have to, I would have to believe that, like, he... He's capable. He was capable of of doing these things. I, to what extent, though, I just don't know. Oh my god! Even if what he was convicted of doing is true, which we kind of pretty much know it was, he's a monster. Oh yeah. And I think that Gypsy unknowingly played a pretty huge role in this. And even if she didn't know what was happening after the fact, she didn't seem to care too much. Nope. And um, even like the author in the book where a lot of this information is coming from, um, the author tried to reach out for a comment from Gypsy. And in like the afternote, she said that Gypsy wanted to be paid for it. Be paid, huh? (laughs) So I think that that speaks volumes there. That's a good way to end it. Um, (laughs) So we hope you enjoyed part two of the tragic story of the McNeil family. Um, but also the strength that the the women of the McNeil family have. That was intense, right? I loved it. It's so crazy. Um, but before we go, we're 
it's so happy that we got to bring you this episode and kind of get us two weeks in a row, which is exciting. And we'll be back next week. But we do want to thank our new supporters on Patreon that joined within the, the past week. So a big thank you to Rebecca Weiserich, Alicia Burke, Sally Evans, Amy Gauday, Jennifer Bales, Yitka Kush, Poppy Gale, Mildy, Stephanie LaRose, Seneca, and Michelle Rosenberg. Thank you guys so much for joining. We hope you're enjoying the back catalog and it's helping you get through cleaning up from the holiday season and prepare for New Year's. (laughs) There's plenty of that. (laughs) All right. See you next week. Bye, guys. Bye.